party in New York City. It's a dinner party, right? At the time, Lloyd is the president of the Markle Foundation. So he's like no stranger to fundraising. He enters in this uh, conversation with Joan Gaddis Cooney, who at the time was a producer at WNET Channel 13, which is New York City still today, uh, public broadcasting station. So she's no stranger to content, right? So at the time, there were television was starting to explode. It was getting into everybody's house. And they really wondered, they, they started to write about television. And it wasn't in this like, hey, have you seen TV? Have you seen the Breaking Bad finale sort of way? It was like, is there something that we can do with television? Because it's so addictive. People love staring at that screen, right? Is there something that we can do to help uh, make a difference in the world? And in particular, what they had noticed is that urban youth were having a hard time keeping up with their suburban, more affluent counterparts from an education standpoint, right? Now, the stage was set because five years earlier, this dude, Newton Minow, he was a chairman of the FCC, and basically he gave this speech in 1961. It became really famous. It was called the Vast Wasteland Speech. And I'm going to read you a little paragraph from this. When television is good, nothing. Not the theater, not the magazines or newspapers, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air and stay there for a day without a book, without a magazine, without your iPhone. Just kidding, you didn't say that. Uh, without a profit loss sheet or a ratings book to distract you, keep your eyes glued to the set till the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. This is what the FCC chairman says about television in 1961. I mean, does this sound familiar at all? I mean, I mean, there may be other screens that we're used to seeing on a regular basis right now, but I don't know that that sort of uh, that that similar view a little bit, right? So Lloyd and Joan, Joan basically capitalized on this dirt, right? There was a ton of junk out there, and they really wanted to shift the paradigm away from these scripted sitcoms that all follow the same formulas and the advertising that cajoled and tried to get you to pay attention to it. Everything was noise at this point, right? They wanted to take a new approach where they were essentially looking at the content that they could uh, 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 push out using the television, right, and actually measure the success. So, in effect, they were the first lead startup. Does anybody know who this is? Yeah! Gold stars for everyone! That's right. Sesame Street, it's like mind-blowing to think about as a lead startup, right? But that's exactly what they did. They decided that if they put together small enough chunks of programming and then put kids in front of that programming, before they ever tried to disseminate it, that they could find out whether or not television could even be used to educate kids, right? They were focused on the content, really small chunks of it, too. Like, they found out, from a delivery standpoint, that kids stopped learning when it was just the Muppets or just the humans. There had to be a nice balance of both of them in order for the kids to keep paying attention. They even studied the content to the point where uh, James Earl Jones, young James Earl Jones, that's right. That's right. James Earl Jones may have taught you the alphabet or how to count to one, one to ten. Uh, what they found is that if James Earl Jones waited three seconds between saying A, B, C, that kids would start counting out the next in line. If they waited four seconds, the kids lost interest. If they waited two seconds, 
and they found out what the new mechanisms of delivery, like you know, your the web or even game consoles or the iPad, what they had to do with their content in order to achieve learning. Their objective was always learning, and it still is today. And now they've been able to scale that model to even change the content itself. So instead of just teaching A to Z, one to ten, now they teach you how to handle things like Hurricane Katrina or divorce. Things that are really powerful, <coughs> emotional things that they couldn't imagine them to have, uh, of doing back in the 60s when they were still testing out whether this was viable. So Sesame Street really pioneered this paradigm shift in terms of content on television by learning first, you know, writing the content that they needed to be able to put out there to figure out whether or not it could actually be measured, whether or not it could actually achieve a, a specific goal. And of course, like back in 1966, when they were having these conversations, and Lloyd looked like this, by the way, now he looks like this, 50 years later, little fun fact, Cookie Monster has the same birthday as Lloyd. Anyway, he couldn't have imagined back then how they would continue to grow. They knew that if they started with this finite chunk where they were writing first, they were writing the content first, and then measuring whether or not that content, whether or not that narrative achieved the goal, that they could basically do anything else. That's how he went out and fundraised, raised money too. Fundraise, fundraise, fundraise. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today, right? This, this idea of a narrative which lacks from so many of, uh, of our initial ideas when we're out trying to do customer development or trying to pitch potential customers. Um, and even when we start developing an MVP, the narrative starts to take a back seat. And if Sesame Street has taught us anything, it's that as long as it stays in the front seat, you're going to be winning. Now, I'm going to show you about like six, six different startups that have tried testing content different ways to attract more users, to get more data, to find out whether or not they're meeting those measurable outcomes. And that's the key part of this, right? The narrative. And I mean the actual words, right? Using the words that make your customers understand that they have to be measurable. They have to be measurable. That's really the key. So, one of these startups that I've been working with, Work Design Magazine, since 2010. So, when I went out on my own in like May, three, three and a half years ago, I was at TEDx Potomac Conference that I helped organize with Catherine Smith, who happens to be here, all people in this room. And sitting right behind me was a longtime client. 
wanted uh, to have this print version before we actually spent the $12,000 that it would have cost to print out one for the 5,000 people who have actually subscribed in hope that they had either subscribed to the print version or advertised in the print version, we tested the narrative. What is the real reason why you would want this? Put it in a Google Doc. And then we converted it into a Word Doc because so many people need to have an attachment to an email. So, <laughs> so we tested several different reasons why you might want a print version, even though it's all the same content that you can get online for free right now. So we came with ideas like, okay, you want it because you want to share it with your potential customers, and you want this new print version because you can show off your products in it, and that sort of thing. So we put, uh, we, we put together a little, basically almost like a little media kit, right? and explain why you want it. We hired a designer who put together for a hundred bucks what it might look like if it actually existed, okay? And then we even had pricing in it, and we put together, we put a date on it, right? April 15th of this year, which was three weeks out, and we mailed it out to 25 people, all were leads. They were subscribers, they were friends of Bob's and mine. They were people who should probably convert. And what we heard back across the board, aside from zero takers, unfortunately, were two things common to all, like, that we ended up getting 21 uh, people get back to us out of those 25. And almost all of them said one of these two things, in some cases both, right? You know, it's not in our budget, which means they don't really want to pay for this, right? And we also really love the online version. We're going to keep being that customer for you, right? And then we pass this along to our marketing director, which I later learned after attempting to follow up with the marketing director several times. Basically, this says, I don't give a shit. <laughs> it's somebody else's problem now. If you want to try and go make that person give a shit, I've helped you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I didn't spend much more time there. Anyway, but it saved us $12,000, right? What we ended up doing at the same time was running some experiments around in-person events and around sponsorships with big manufacturers who might want case studies. And it turns out that those are revenue right generating uh, lines for us, so we stuck with what we know. Another example of testing content, it's a really great company, uh, Tui. These guys are, these guys know how to hustle. So I met them in an angel hack. They participated in an angel hack event in DC. And I was a fortunate to be a judge. There were, I don't know, I think it was like 25 or 30 different uh, startups that participated in that weekend. They were the only ones that went out from food truck to food truck, restaurant to restaurant, and validated and even got signed letters of intent from people that, uh, that they might actually be able to build a product that helped those restaurants retain their customers. It would bring more customers back into their doors after they had been there initially, right? So they started growing, they built this product, and uh, they even got accepted into an accelerator in North Carolina. And we kept talking about it, uh, about where they're at. And I asked them, like, okay, so how is the sale going? And they said, well, it's going steady. We'd like to accelerate it. And I said, okay, well, what do you say when you go in to try and make a sale, right? Because now they had built a product. Whereas during Angel Hack, when they got all those signed letters of intent, all they were doing was having conversations with people, getting people excited about the possibility. People were willing to sign letters of intent to purchase this just through the 
when you start building the MVP, you stop thinking about the conversations with customers as customer development and instead as sales, the conversation shifts. The conversation shifts. Now the person you're talking to is not so open because the person is thinking that you're trying to sell them something because you are. Right? So, so essentially, they told me what their pitch is when they go into a restaurant these days, and it follows exactly what their homepage looks like, right? They say, okay, we're guest management. They tell you about the trial that you can, uh, the, the demo that they can walk you through. They tell you about what they do, of course, other restaurants that are using them, and that they're, and their mission and what they're trying and why they exist in the first place, right? So I asked them a couple of questions. And I would ask you, if you have something like this, to ask yourself these questions too. How long does it take you to get to the point? And they said, well, normally about a minute. About a minute in, I'm like really into the, the, goods, the good stuff. And I said, okay, and then what? And they go, well, then at that point we show them the demo. And I said, okay, and then what? And they said, well, once we show them the demo, then they really get it. And they said, so they're not really getting it. They're just agreeing to see the demo after a minute. They don't really get it until they see the product. They said, yeah. Now, six months prior, before they had a product, they were selling more effectively than after they had built the product. Because after they had built the product, they were trying to sell the product versus listening to the customer. Does this make sense? And you're like, I see a lot of nodding heads. It's resonating with you. Okay, good. So here's a shortcut technique. If you only have one sentence to try and pitch your idea to somebody, one sentence, really pay attention to the response, the first response that you get from the person you're pitching to, whether it's a question or an acknowledgement, right? Keep track of that, because whatever that first question is that they ask in response to you giving them a one-sentence pitch is probably the thing that they need to hear in order to categorize it more quickly. Right? So with Tui, I said, what do they keep asking you about? Why is it taking them so long to understand it? And they said, well, we keep getting hung up because they say, oh, you're like a digital comment card. And they said, well, I mean, that's a little part of what we do. That's not all of what we do. Look at all this other stuff. But think about a conversation that you have in real life. It's, it grows over time. It has to start somewhere. The person has to sort of understand where you're going in order to stay with, stay with you in that conversation. So I said, okay, so they're calling you a digital comic card. I know that you guys offer a lot more than that. I wouldn't attempt to devalue that at all, but is there a way that you can use that to your advantage? And you say, we're, we're a digital comic card, and open more conversations and close more sales more quickly and that sort of thing, so they tried it. And this is what happened. Just by saying they're a digital comic card, which is the customer's language. It's the way the customer was categorizing that company. Their conversions went from 5 to 10% to 75%, right? And I said, okay, well, what are you really doing differently? And they said, it's really in the explanation of what we're doing. In the old version, we are trying to explain what we were. Because a lot of us don't know what we are yet, so we're, we're really trying to see what works. But in the new version, we simply say, we're a better version of your comic card. Because the comic card is the thing that they understood. It was the thing that kept the conversation going. This is the same thing if, I mean, let me just take a step to the side and say, if you're trying to sell, right, if, if, if you're trying to educate people on why they should care, 
are connecting very quickly, which helps you learn very quickly what your value is. You don't have to work so hard to try and get the person to understand. So, RidePost is another example, right? This is, this is another company out of D.C., it's uh, around South Carolina, actually. Met when they were up in D.C., really super smart founder, Marty, and they trying to sort of figure out where they fit into everything. They have what a lot of uh, us do, uh, is we have lots of different language on our pages, right? RidePost is a trusted community where travelers meet and share rights. It's also a growing community, you guys, and by the way, it builds private networks to get people to and from campuses and events and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And in an attempt to try and categorize itself to all these different audiences, it offers a ton of different marketing narratives. So it places the burden on you, the audience, to figure out where you fit in instead of prioritizing which audience is most valuable. So when I was talking to him, he was asking me about SEO. So how many of you have uh, some product that's online already in Google Analytics? Right, okay, great. So for you to learn more quickly what kinds of words it is that really attract, attracts people to you, um, use Google Keyword Planner. Um, so I, I asked them, you know, what words your customers use and they didn't know. I said, what problems do they ask if you can solve? And they knew some of that, right? And that was in some of their language. But once they used Google Keyword Planner, they were actually able to go in and see market size for different kinds of words. For example, for example, first of all, do any of you use Google Keyword Planner? Yeah, this is this helps you understand whether or not there's interest in the first place in something that's related to your business, right? So for example, I love CrossFit. I'm in a CrossFit. If I happen to have a CrossFit app idea, which I do, um, <laughs> if, if I go if I to Google Keyword Planner and I put in CrossFit versus fitness versus active versus health, that sort of thing, I find that CrossFit has almost four times as many monthly organic searches. The word CrossFit, I can't necessarily use it without getting sued. It's an, important, it's an important tool that helps you understand the language of your customers in a way that helps you then identify whether or not you should actually be using their language in your copy. Because the goal here is to optimize, if you have something online already, is to optimize for the search engines so that you can get more data. Because you can learn more quickly if you have more data. Right? So, that's what they did. They decided everybody was using the word ride sharing. So they changed their interface, right? They changed their interface to just being, just skip forward here, ride most is ride share. They say this is what it is. Find rides to the places you need to go. And this is very succinct compared to those four different ways that they were trying to tell you how they fit into your life. They just said this is what it is. And it came from language that they found in Google Keyword Planner. Of course, the outcomes speak for themselves as well. The last two weeks, were our top weeks for organic growth in our history. And what they did is they found the terms from Google Keyword Planner and they put them in their H1s and they put them in their title tags and they put them in their meta descriptions and they wrote blog posts using those keywords that they found in Google Keyword Planner that were related to their business. They had a lot of monthly organic searches. So they were able to learn much more quickly what was bringing people to the site. And that allowed them to then focus their business on what was turning out to be really lucrative and really popular for them. The students were doing a lot of searches. So RidePost University is the main audience that they go after. 
filling a gap. There's being proactive. And the last example I want to share with you, though, that is that it actually helps you understand. By, by really testing your content in this way and paying attention to content separate from the user interface, separate from your user experience, it helps you understand who your actual customer is. I learned this the hard way when I was working on Fast Customer 2011, 2012. I co-founded this with, um, because I didn't want to wait on home for customer service, and luckily 100,000 other people also felt the same way, downloaded the app. So right out of the gate, this will probably like never happen to me again in my entire life, but right out of the gate, we started getting coverage. Big, big media outlets too. In fact, I found out that we had a video review of us on NBC in Philadelphia through a Google alert. I had no idea. They didn't call us or anything. And so as Lean Startup sort of uh, prepares you for, I got all wrapped up in the vanity metrics for a while. Like, yeah, we were like winning the world. Look at all these headlines. We're totally going totally to change customer service forever and ever. Anyway, I had thought only about that consumer-facing tool that we had created, the prototype, it saved tons of downloads, the mobile app, you can still get it, by the way. And I hadn't thought about any sort of, uh, uh, I hadn't thought about any of the other audiences. I hadn't been, I hadn't been narrating to any other audience. I was just speaking to the consumer, and it was getting us headlines. But it wasn't changing our business. We would get a spike in downloads, but they weren't upgrading at higher rates. Our, and they weren't actually using the application more. So this was a, like this was a stark vanity metric. Like coming to this epiphany, this is a vanity metric. So I went back into the press. I went back into the press and I started studying what are the words that the journalists are using to describe us. And I went through the comments on the posts. What are the comments that the customers, the users rather, are saying about it? That sort of thing. Are there any themes that I can learn from this? And I thought, I wonder what the best way to reach the customers is. And remember, I still think at this point that the customer is our consumer, right? And so I decided that I want to try and uh, I want to try and do this a little bit more scientifically, a little more proactively. So does anybody know Tau app? Have you ever used Tau app? Yeah. Okay, like two people. These two people are the most enlightened people about email platforms, okay? You should find TownApp is awesome. Um, it lets you uh, create templates and see open rates and see which times of the day are best to send it out, that sort of thing. So we did this, right? I was going to pitch two different kinds of publications because I saw some interesting things that were happening. One was that on days that we would have headlines, sometimes we get a ton of downloads and a a ton of page views, and other days we would get a ton of form submissions. And the form submissions would come from companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield asking us how they could use our technology for their customers. And I had like no idea, right? Because I'm not a, I'm not a business app. I'm a consumer app, right? Like that's what I am. I'm pretty confident about that. Dumb. Dumb. Anyway. Two secrets, by the way, if you are going out for press, this is sort of a little bit of a sidebar. One thing 
want them to click through. And this is so, so key, right? This, this is what Chat App will allow you to do too, is really iterate on your own messaging as you're trying to figure out your own narrative. Keep it succinct. I mean, if your email is not the lead of their story, they are not going to come up with it for you. It has to be powerful and compelling and have some emotional hook to it, right? Uh, if you can do that, they will click through. So those are the, the, the sort of two keys around press that I learned through this uh, experiment. Anyway, so and in optimizing um, on, on Town App, and then measuring, I put together a spreadsheet where it was basically all of the, uh, the dates and the, the headlines that came out and the, the source that they came from. I measured how, when that happened, for the next 24 hours, how did that affect our downloads? How did that affect our page views? How did it affect our form submissions? And what I learned was anytime that we published in mainstream media, the NBCs of the world, we got a ton of downloads that didn't make a difference to our business. Whenever we published to a business or a sort of niche publication, we got a ton of sales leads because it turns out that we were actually a B2B application. If we followed up with those sales leads, and as I as I learned, we didn't have an enterprise narrative. I started to create an enterprise narrative because I was doing customer development with these sales leads. Then we were able to define a product, release a product, and start making money, which is something that we had not done for the eight months prior. We were going out with the consumer who we thought was our customer and who we were getting headlines about. It wasn't smoke screen. It was actually the business. I only learned that two months later, right? When I started realizing that I could actually be a little bit more strategic with how, uh, with our narrative and our content, in order to get the kinds of results that would actually grow the business. So, how does this then feed into the user experience, right? Narrative as user experience. This is taking that a step further. So now that we know the words, I mean, it's really a prerequisite, right? That we know those words to make our customers understand. And, and we think about them sort of divorced from the interface, we can, now we can actually create an end-to-end -end experience that feels like a conversation. And this isn't new, right? Did anybody read Choose Your Adventure books? Those are so great! Thank you. Some of you boys are hand on that, yes. Choose Your Adventure books in this. They start telling the story first, and only in, once you're in the story do they give you the option to make choices. And by then you feel like you can actually make the choice because you're in the story have what you need to make choices. Video game design. This doesn't, the video game design has been doing this forever. Trevor in Grand Theft Auto 5 is a despicable human being. There are tons of stories around him that are ridiculous, right? But even though I might on launch want to start flying or like be in a helicopter with Trevor, I can't. I have to go through all of these immediate, uh, more immediate learning experiences so that I'm actually playing the game and there's actually conversations happening around 
in the marketing here. It's the actual UI, it's the inputs, it's the outputs, it's the part that still needs to feel like a conversation, even though it's technology. So I've been using a Google Doc over the last couple years to start planning the user interface and the flow so that I can make sure I stay focused on the conversation. So I don't get sidelined by the features, so I don't start putting together all the new libraries that are out there. I try to just think about that conversation in a succinct way, like Sesame Street did in the early days when it said we have this much that we're going to test and we're going to try and get this outcome. So what is the smallest interaction that you need somebody to complete, right? If it's a sign-up, do they get an email? What's that email say? Think about that end-to-end -end interaction and write it all down in a Google Doc. Because developers get a bad rep, too, when there isn't error messaging that sounds good. But that's because nobody wrote it for them. They just had to ship it. And so they put something there. It's not their fault. It's whoever isn't representing the conversation in the product. The people who are having the conversation in the front line. It's probably you doing the hustle. So Minded,